Would you stand with me, friends, as we read the Lord's Word this morning, taken from Colossians chapter 3. I am reading verses 12 through 17, if you again listen to the Lord's Word. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. This is the Lord's word. Would you please be seated? Again, Father, we thank you for your word and pray that you would bless this servant and bless these your people. We ask that you would give us ears to hear. And I pray, Father, that you would keep the evil one from causing things to be heard that aren't said. I pray, Lord, that you would advance your kingdom, your glory. I pray, Lord, that you would cause the weightiness of your glory to be felt upon every heart in this place. And we ask, Father, that you would cause the kingdom of Satan great injury. Oh, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this mysterious thing, this mysterious blessing where we read and preach your word. And somehow you work through these things which the world considers foolish, and yet you advance your glory. And you have been doing this since the beginning. Thank you, Father, for this and for this privilege. And now I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here the apostles, or the apostle rather, has been speaking to the saints in Colossae, and he has been reminding them that Christ is supreme over all. He alone is all that is necessary for salvation. He alone is what makes us righteous before God in contrast with the false teachers who had encouraged placing confidence in the flesh, those distinctions that we mentioned last week, the distinctions that the world makes. I'm this color, I'm that color, I'm this sex, I'm that sex, I'm this or that, I'm this status. And we we make these distinctions and we think of ourselves as being more worthwhile to God, more valuable to God, or we look at other people and say, they're not so valuable, not so important. And I want to remind you, did you know that Rome was conquered in the 300s by the slaves who had come to Christ? I was reminded of that once by Hugh Wessel who said, you know, it's an interesting thing. It wasn't an army that conquered Rome. It was the church. Lowly slaves, carrying the gospel, living out the things of the Lord, turned an empire upside down. What would happen in the United States if Christians behaved like Christians ought to behave? What would occur if that were the case? You see, we make these distinctions of, among ourselves, and we say these distinctions are so important, but not in the church. That has no place in the church, as we looked at last week. But Christ is all and in all. We don't gauge our worthiness before God based upon our past or our present or anyone else's worthiness of those things. My friends, before the Lord, we all have something in common. We're all wrecks. We're all wretches. We're all sinners. 
and in the Lord alone we are redeemed, and in the Lord alone we are made righteous. He has been exhorting the church then as we have made our way into chapter 3. He's been exhorting us to be in practice what in Christ um, we have been made in principle. If we are righteous in Christ, then we must live righteous lives. First telling them what they need to put off or put to death or lay aside. Listen again to what he says. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. In verse 8, he says, put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. And then he goes on to say, do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed. The idea, again, behind renewal is renovation. Old things, sinful ways of thinking, sinful desires, destructive words, destructive practices, these things have no place in the body of Christ anymore. We've been renovated. We've put off the old. Now we have put on the new, that in Jesus Christ. Renovated, new things, new beliefs, understandings, new desires, things that build, things that are life-giving. This is what ought to characterize the church. So here, as we come to verses 12 and following, here he has told them what to put aside. Now he tells them what they ought to put on. What they are to put on. These are the behaviors you should have put off. These are now the characteristics, the attitudes, the virtues that we need to put on as the Lord's people. In light of who they are and what Christ has done for them, they were to put on the character, or as we sometimes say, the mindset of Jesus Christ. My friends, this is the Lord's instructions for us today. What is this new self that we are to put on? And I want to, uh, I want to share with you that we're not going to get very far. <laughs> There's so much here. Um, it, it reminds me a little bit of, of some of my grandchildren when they find a rock they're out walking, they find a rock, and they pick it up, and then they find another rock, and they pick that up. And before long, their arms are full of rocks, and they see another rock that they want to pick up. That's the way it was moving through this text for me this week. I found a rock, and then I found another rock, and I found another rock, and I go, i gotta, I got to end before 12.30. So I'm, I'm leaving some of the rocks until next week. <laughs> but we're, we're, we're approaching this, and it's, it's just a, a fantastic passage of Scripture. We need to understand, as, as he begins to tell us what we are to put on, we need to understand that uh, what we are, that we are grounded in God's eternal decree, which has resulted in a change of status for us. It's a most wonderful thing. Listen to what he says. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. Those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, understand that what I'm not doing and what I don't want to do and, what I, and why I pray that, Lord, keep people from hearing things that I'm not saying is because my concern is, is that sometimes people may hear me say that you just need to stop being bad and just start being good. And that's how we summarize often. What, did, what was the sermon? Oh, he told us to stop doing this and start doing that. He says, stop being bad people and start being good people. Friends, that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. 
Listen to what Jeremiah wrote in uh, chapter 13. He says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. I can tell you all day long to stop doing bad things and start doing good things, but unless there's a change in your heart, nothing is going to happen. That's where, that's, that's where we short-circuit things, and that's why in churches people are accused of legalism. Sometimes they are because they leave Jesus Christ out of this formula, and sometimes they don't leave Jesus Christ out of this formula, but because you're dead in your flesh, you don't have ears to hear what's actually being said. A dead man hears nothing. He hears nothing. You can go up to the cemetery and scream at the dirt, He hears nothing. There is no life in his bones. And so Paul, quoting from the Psalms, Psalm 14 and 53, he says in Romans 3, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. There's a spiritual condition There is a spiritual condition. Paul here in Colossians, he's not writing to men and women who are spiritually dead. Understand, as he gives this instruction, understand to whom he is speaking. These people are spiritually alive. They have been made alive. They have been brought to life by the sovereign decree of Almighty God. As those, he says, who have been chosen of God, He is making a statement of fact here about these Christians. Indeed, my friends, he is making a statement of fact that is true of all Christians. It's the only time this word is used in this passage. I will show you in just a moment that this word is used frequently. They have been chosen of God. And I want to take a little time here with this. This is one of my first rocks. This is a word or a concept that is a difficult one to swallow for many people. And it is frightening to some. In fact, our own confession of faith says, this is one of those doctrines you really need to handle with special care. Because it's a frightening doctrine. It's frightening. Because it it makes God um, seem not quite safe or even untamable. It makes it seem as though God's doing something and and I have no control of the matter. But really, it's a doctrine that becomes wonderfully sweet and assuring if we can sort through what the doctrine does and doesn't mean. For instance, oftentimes, those who would preach concerning the predestination or the sovereignty of God or election we look at these doctrines and you say, oh, these are the people who are the frozen chosen. They're the ones who don't believe in evangelism because God already knows who he's going to save. Or we say things like, um, God, is, God is unfair, God is unfeeling, uncaring, um, he's merciless. Or we look at uh, people who hold to these doctrines and say they're really nothing better than robots. Their theology leads to a robot type of theology. They're, everything is just predetermined. But if that were the case, 
if, if that's what Paul was saying, he would never go on to give any more instruction about what to put on, would he? So clearly the apostles bringing up these words and yet has no problem then saying right after the calling saying that they were chosen of God he has no problem saying therefore this is how you're supposed to live this is how you're supposed to think this is what you're supposed to do most of our problems friend is not what the scripture teaches because you can look in the scriptures and you see the words and you go I don't know how I can argue with the words the problem comes with these doctrines with the baggage of the people we've run into in the past who have imported meanings into things that the Bible has never put in there. We were at the other church, and I was preaching, and there was a man who was visiting that day from an evangelical church in the area, and he said to me, that was the most evangelistic sermon I've ever heard, and you guys are a bunch of Calvinists. (laughs) You see, that's a misperception that people who believe in the, uh, the foreknowledge and predetermining will of God and his decrees that somehow we're against evangelism. You know why I evangelize? Because I know that God has his people out there somewhere and they need to hear of Jesus Christ. Plus, he tells us to go and be his witnesses. The doctrine can be very troubling and and I, I, I recognize that. I don't want it to be troubling. Um, because I think such great goodness and sweetness actually comes from a proper understanding of this doctrine. A great assurance comes to us because we serve a great God. And if there was one thing I could wish that you would come away from this church, I would want you to come away being astounded at the glory and wonder and majesty and power of our God, who when people stand in his presence They want to fall down like dead men and women. Who when he came down on Mount Sinai, they said, Moses, you talk to us. Don't let us talk to him. It was so frightening a sight. He is not safe. He's not safe. Ask Job if he felt like God was safe. But he saw that God was good. That's where we need to land as believers. He's not predictable in the sense that he's going to make you comfortable or let you know where he's taking things. But you can count on him to be truthful, to fulfill his promise that he won't let you go in the whole process. That's good. This word chosen is an adjective and it is used to describe the Christian. They are chosen of God. It's from the Greek eklektos, means to mean it means to be picked out or elect. In the New Testament, it refers to those who have obtained salvation through Christ. Let me give you several verses um, because while this verse is this word is only used here in Colossians uh, 3:12. It's used in many other places in the New Testament. Let me give you several of these. In Matthew twenty-two fourteen, Jesus closes out the parable of the marriage feast by saying, For many are called, but few are chosen. Remember that there was a man in the wedding feast who had come to the wedding feast in his own clothing. 
And the, the master comes and says, what are you doing in here? You have no place in here. Cast him out. And then Jesus gives these words, for many are called, but few are chosen. The man was thinking he was good as he was. He was called, but he was not chosen. In John 13, 18, we read this. I do not speak of all of you. This is Jesus speaking. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Again, Jesus chose these disciples, and one of those disciples was Judas, who was called the son of perdition. It is a Hebrew idiom, which means one destined to perish. 1 Corinthians, if you turn with me, this is a little bit longer passage. 1 Corinthians 1, we read this in verse 20, um, 26 to the end of the chapter. Paul writes, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God, but by his doing, listen to that, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us, notice that, by his doing you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. At one point, you didn't recognize Jesus Christ. It doesn't change who Jesus Christ is. What has changed is not Christ, but your perception of him. Why is it that one time, at one point, you didn't see Jesus Christ and you said, hogwash, mythological stories made up by people who need an opiate to help them through life's problems. We know a lady like this who just a year ago was mocking these things and now has bent the knee to Jesus Christ in sweet adoration. What changed? By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, it says here that God has chosen you from the beginning. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. And then listen to this triumphant verse from Revelation 17, verse 14. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are, listen, you ready, listening? The called and chosen and faithful. That with the Lord comes his host of people that he's chosen from before the foundation of the world, that he has called and that who have persevered and are faithful now to the end. A believer has been chosen by the Lord not because he believed, but he believed because he was chosen. Paul says of these Colossians, you have been chosen by God. If you would turn with me, and I've only given you 
a few light verses. Turn with me to Romans chapter 9. It's a significant doctrine, friends. What a, what a Savior, what a gift we have been given. Now listen to this. And I'm, I'm picking up in verse 14. Paul writes, What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? You see, this is the idea. Uh, this doesn't sound, this doesn't smell right. Reminds me of my being a student in college. And I made that comment. Doesn't God have to save everyone? can't believe that came out of my mouth and my teacher looked at me right in the eyeballs and he said who said God had to save anyone and I had a Job moment where I put my hand over my mouth and all I could think was who is this who darkens knowledge or darkens wisdom without knowledge and my view of God grew Immense in like 20 seconds. What have I been thinking about this God? That he is somehow here to meet my needs. Rather, he is here to be worshipped and glorified and to be submitted to. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. My friends, do you understand what a blessing? And, and the fact that the Lord doesn't save everyone, do you know what that says? That says that this grace that we have tasted of, that we are drinking, is the most amazing grace. And men are not owed it. They are not due to it. It is not due to them. It is a gift that God lovingly, freely bestows upon whomever he wants, whenever he wants It is his sovereign right. And you sitting out here this morning who have tasted of the things of the Lord, who have looked upon the Lord Jesus in humble submission, do you know why you have done that? It was not because of your will. It was not because you ran. It was because of God who opened your eyes and said, Come to me, my child. 
for I am taking pity on you. I am looking upon you in mercy, and I have given my son to redeem you by his own blood. That's why you sit here this morning and are a believer. It is the gift of God. He has chosen them. He has chosen us. He has picked these individuals to show mercy that they may know the riches of his mercy. And I could go on. I could mention Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, where Israel's chosen, not because they're the most, not because they're the greatest, they're because of nothing in them. He chose them simply because he wanted to and how Peter takes those same verses and applies them to the Gentiles in 1 Peter 2, 8 through 10. Being chosen is a most wonderful thing. It is the most wonderful thing that Paul could say of these people. Their salvation is the result of a sovereign grace simply because the Lord wanted to bestow it upon his people. Your salvation is the result of God's sovereign grace. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Because they are chosen, they have believed the truth of the gospel. They have been justified, they have been adopted, and now the process has, been, uh, has begun of being sanctified, of becoming what they are in Jesus Christ. My friends, their status has changed. They are now holy. Not in practice, but in principle. And he says this. He says, uh, right here in verse 12, if I were in the right book, verse 12, so those who have been chosen of, of God, holy and beloved. And then he tells them to put on. They have not yet put on. They now need to put on. But what they are in Christ, they are considered holy, set apart from the world, set apart to God, their sinful deeds and guilt have been removed and they have been credited with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They are no longer unholy and unrighteous, but are now holy. That is declared to be holy. And he reminds them again that they are beloved of the Lord. Beloved of God. Matthew Henry says, those who are the elect of God and holy are beloved. He has set his love upon them. This word in the Greek uh, it comes from the, similar to the root of agape, this other seeking, this other pouring uh, of love. The Lord has set his love upon them and has given them his son. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. And in Ephesians 1, 5, we are told that in love he predestined us to adoption as sons. So we have these wonderful things said about these saints, how being loved and chosen, they are holy. And this is what they are, and my friends, this is what you are. I have to give you one more verse. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. William Perkins called that the golden chain. It's a golden chain because it's a chain that can't be broken. 
And so when, the, when Paul writes that those whom he foreknew, the, the debate comes down to this. Well, what does God foreknow? He knows everything, doesn't he? He knows every fact. And so we will have some of our brothers will say, well, God looked down the corridors of times and he saw who was going to accept the Lord Jesus into their heart. And so he saved them. Illogical. It's illogical. That makes the creature in control and not the creator. The other way we could look at that foreknowledge is the knowledge of Joseph and Mary. Joseph didn't know Mary until after Jesus was born. We all know what that means. He didn't have intimate relations with Mary until after Jesus was born. Foreknowledge in this sense is a knowledge of intimacy. It is a knowledge of love. It's not, Paul's not talking about God foreknows all facts. No kidding. He's God. What he's saying is, is that those whom he foreknew in this intimate and loving sense, now listen, it's a chain because they all hold together. Those whom he foreknows, those whom he loves, he predestines. And those whom he predestines, he calls. And these whom he calls, he justifies. And those whom he justifies, he glorifies. Which means this, that once God says, you're mine, and you're coming to me, you see, God is not a gentleman. That verse out of Romans or Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and I hope you're going to open the door, because I'd really like to save you, but I really have no more power than a vacuum cleaner salesman. That's not what the scripture says. Our God is a warrior God. He sets about to conquer a people, and he conquers them, and he saves them by his own mercy and loving kindness. And Paul is saying that when he foreknows somebody, when he has set his love upon them, and Christ has redeemed them, my friends, you will safely be brought home. That's the gospel. You will be glorified. That chain will not be broken. Because when our God decides to do something, he does it, and he does it flawlessly. Amen? That's good news. And I think I should stop. I've made you listen for 30 minutes. Um, We will pick up with more rocks next week. But let me say, there is a right and appropriate and a loving response to such grace and such kindness. And you know what it is? It is to put on the mind of Jesus Christ. And that's why we do it. Like with our offerings and like everything we do, we are responding to the love of God for us. We are not meriting the love of God for us. We are responding to the love of God for us. If you'll bow with me, friends, we will pray. Again, Lord, we thank you for this day and thank you for your word and pray, O Father, that you would help us with these doctrines because they are huge. They are oftentimes intimidating. And yet we acknowledge, Father, what a sweet and wonderful doctrine it is. We don't stand up here, Lord, and confess that we are somehow deserving, more deserving than others. But we are deserving, just as deserving as others, to be sent to hell. 
it was because of your kindness that you have brought us to faith in Christ. And we thank you for this gift. We thank you, Lord, for your kindness. And we pray that we would respond to these things, to your love, with obedience. Now help us, we pray. As we continue to work through this passage, we ask, Father, that you would more and more create in us the mind of Christ, that we would look like the renovated selves we should in Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray, amen.